I hope you'll take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of Philippians, about halfway through the New Testament, chapter 2. And as you're doing so, I'd like to pose this to you. I don't know if you've ever been in a group where people want to get to know each other, so they ask everyone, well, why don't we go around and everybody tell us their most embarrassing moment? And it doesn't take long, probably, for every one of us to quickly call to mind our most embarrassing moment. We're not going to do that here at this time. But psychologists tell us that we all tend to remember those things which are painful and which are embarrassing. And so that time or those times we were uh, humiliated for one reason or another, they can quickly come to mind even years or decades later. Uh, Most of us would never choose to be humiliated. In fact, our our goals typically each day is to avoid such. Well, this passage we're going to read, it talks about how Jesus humbled himself, how he was humiliated in the fullest sense of the word. Let me invite you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of Philippians 2. Hear God's word. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The emphasis here, and so ends the reading of God's Word, the emphasis in this passage is, is unity. Paul is in an imprisonment in Rome, and he's, he's writing to these Christians, even as he's writing to us at, at this time. And he's saying that, that believers, uh, members of Christ's church, those who have faith in Christ, need to be one. We need to be unified in spirit and in mind and in, and in purpose. Uh, Unity is often confused with uniformity, where everything's supposed to look the same, you're supposed to dress the same, or everybody speak the same, or that's not what unity is. Uh, Uniformity often reflects a lack of unity, uh, because it's all external. But unity is internal, it's it's a, a oneness of mind, a oneness of thinking, a oneness of purpose, a oneness of goals, and the goal here is to glorify God, he is saying. And he says God has provided many resources for us as believers to have this unity. Just briefly, in verse 1 and following, he says, We have, he says, if there is any, and there is, it's an emphatic way of stating there is encouragement in Christ, there is comfort of his love, there is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In other words, because the Holy Spirit indwells me and the Holy Spirit indwells you as a follower of Christ, then we can have fellowship on a level that we could not Were we not believers? He says also there's tenderness and compassion. And therefore, Paul, writing to these believers whom he greatly loved, said, Make my joy complete. In other words, you can give me great joy if you will be like-minded. 
So unity comes when we think alike, having the same love, having the same goals. Now, he gives us, and where he goes from here, beginning in about verse 3, is he gives us the main ingredient for unity, and that is humility. Now, in the ancient world, so I've read by and large, especially in the Roman world, humility was not something to which anyone aspired. That was not highly regarded. And probably they, like we, view humility as weakness, as spinelessness, unwilling to stand for what is right. That's not what humility is. I hope to define it for you in a moment. But that's often the way it's, the word comes across. Uh, it's, it's pretty much that way today. I was looking at the table of contents of William Bennett's book that he wrote a few years ago on the book of virtues, you know, uh, virtues in Western civilization and especially in American culture that have uh, been highly esteemed in our culture. Here's the table of contents. These are the virtues in this book. Self-discipline, compassion, responsibility, friendship, work, courage, perseverance, Honesty, loyalty, faith, all good things. But you will not find humility on that list. And I think that's reflective. Not that he, he at the beginning says this is not the complete list of virtues. Well, it's not even near the top, I think, in, often in the way we think. Humility defined is a lowliness of mind. It's to know how low I really am before God and how great that he is. Humility is the opposite of self-centeredness and pride. And chiefly in the New Testament, it shows itself in a willingness to serve others rather than to be served. That seems to be the main characteristic of humility. A willingness to serve others rather than to be served. Let me just go through some characteristics of it. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So humility is not selfish. A selfish person is just concerned about themselves. And that type of person can destroy unity within a family, within the workplace, in an office, on a sports team, in a Christian church. The selfish person's primary desire is to advance yourself, to advance oneself. So therefore, if I am selfish, then you could say Chip's chief concern is Chip. It's very subtle because sometimes it's not always loud and arrogant and braggadocious. It may be quiet and shy and agreeable or flattering. Any of these styles can be in place to promote and to protect self. Humility also, it tells us in verse 3, is not conceited. To be conceited is to have a high view of oneself uh, and to be condescending toward others. A conceited person hurts unity because uh, that person seeks after their own personal glory. And the adjective used here in verse 3 is not just conceit, but vain conceit. Conceit in its essence is empty. It's hollow. There's nothing there. So the conceited person is, is counting on a bank account that has nothing in it. Another characteristic in verse 3, humility regards others as more important than oneself. This is the way of true unity, looking out for the interest of others. We have 
in the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination, we have questions that we ask whenever new officers, elders or deacons, are ordained and installed. And you've heard, if you've been here any amount of time when we go through that part of a worship service once a year, you'll hear these questions. Well, the first question is doctrinal. It says, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the inerrant word of God, and so forth? Number five, question number five out of six says this, do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? You promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord. What does that mean? That means that I as a deacon or I as an elder, well, I submit myself, in other words, if, if I am the minority view on something, well, I submit myself to the majority view in a submissive way. That is another way of saying, will you look out for the interest of others? It's a way of stating what's in Philippians 2. Let me give you more descriptions of humility. And sometimes it's easiest to describe something by contrasting it with its opposite. And I drew some of this from C.J. Mahaney's book on humility and also some writings by John Stott. Um, Humility's opposite is pride. Pride is preoccupation with self. Humility basically is preoccupation with the needs of others. Pride is our greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Pride in its origins and practice are demonic, is demonic and satanic. But humility is Christ-like and spirit-enabled. This means that any human being who has any measure of true humility is a walking miracle. Pride is the encouragement to compare yourself with other people. But humility is continually comparing yourself to Jesus Christ. Pride covets the success that other people have. But humility allows us not to covet the success of others, but to celebrate and to rejoice and be glad for God's grace extended to that person. Pride is about me. It's about what I need, what I feel, what I want, what I prefer, what I care about. But humility is about Jesus, and it is about other people. Pride is about my glory, but humility is about the glory of Jesus. Pride leads to arrogance and smugness and cockiness, and it is repugnant to most other people. Because sometimes even when we stand for the right thing, we do it with a prideful attitude, and that's wrong. But humility leads not to, con to arrogance, but it does lead to confidence. Humility enables you to know who you are and the source of your strength. I think a great example of humility in the Bible was John the Baptist. Here is this man with a very brief ministry, a forerunner, a messenger to prepare the way before the Messiah was to come. Uh, he's, in, he's in prison for a moral stand, and then he's beheaded while he's in prison. John, when he first began his public ministry, some of the religious leaders went out to him and they said, Who are you? I mean, he was baptizing Jews. Baptism in that day and in Old Testament times was to, you were to baptize a Gentile if they wanted to come into the Jewish community. So there was baptism. John was baptizing Jews. And they said, who are you? They said, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm none of those. Well, who are you then? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Now, 
that is not an arrogant man, but that was a statement of a confident man. He knew who he was in the source of his strength. I'd say John the Baptist was a humble man. Augustine said, Pride is the mother of all sin. If that's true, then humility is the mother of all joy. Augustine also said, For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and it's the third. Pride is something that you and I can achieve in this lifetime. But humility is something we must continually pursue in this lifetime. I had to ask myself this past week, Chip, are you a humble man? And immediately I'd say, no, I'm not. But I am trying to pursue humility. Make it your aim to pursue humility. The church needs a posture of humility. That is that we look out for the interest of others because proud people think only of themselves, but humble people are concerned for others. So are you pursuing humility? Well, now let me show you how we do it. Following the words of Paul, he gives us one example, the supreme example, and it's not an Old Testament follower of God. It's not an, it is Christ himself. When I read the scriptures, the only lessons we gain about modeling humility all come from the life of Christ. How did Jesus model humility? Well, in verses 6 and following, it tells us that his humility was chosen. It says in verse 6, speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Before Jesus was incarnate, before he became a man, there he was, God the Son, He was God with all the riches of God, with all the power of God. And it says he did not cling to that. He did not hold to that. He did not grasp onto that in order that he might become incarnate. In his innermost being, he was God. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But he did not say that was something to be grasped, though he existed as God. He did not count that existence as something to hold on to. Instead, he emptied himself. Now, he did not empty himself of his divine nature. But it was his own choice to humble himself in becoming a man. You know, when you and I, most of us, whenever we've achieved anything, as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, some kind of notoriety, some kind of office or position, we don't want to let it go normally. I mean, how, honestly, how many people in any political office don't run for a second term? I mean, it's, it's very rare, and usually only for very extenuating circumstances. We want to hang on to those things. I worked hard to get here. I don't want to lose it. Jesus chose to humble himself. So I want you to see that he, his humility was by his own choice. It was not forced upon him. Secondly, it was sacrificial. He gave up so much. The parallel passage to Philippians 2 is 2 Corinthians 8. And it says in 2 Corinthians that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. As God, Christ owned, so to speak, everything. Everything belonged to him. I have a uh, longtime friend that began a ministry many years ago. He led that ministry for years and years and years. It grew with many, many staff in many places, and then he was released. He was fired. 
And so he was without a job, I think, for about a year. And during that time, I would uh, get together with him periodically. And he told me, I basically said, how are you making ends meet? And he, he told me kind of what their standard of living had become. They had, they had done away with everything that was not of just ultimate necessity as far as expense. I mean, just forget about any kind of newspaper subscriptions or anything that was, was optional was gone. And uh, I told him, we were speaking of that, and I admired that. And he said, Chip, the reality is until you have to do it, most of us will never make such choices. Until it's forced upon you, you know you can probably save some money by doing something else. You can change your lifestyle. But he said, until you have to do it, most of us just won't do it. You ever had to borrow something you used to own? A number of years ago, both of our automobiles blew up. Well, I mean, they didn't really blow up, but they had major problems at the same time. I'm talking engines and transmissions. And sometimes both, in one case, like needed to be replaced. So they were, they were not quick things to repair, and it was at the point, do you fix the car or do you sell the car and buy something? <laughs> so we were going on a trip. We were going on a vacation, and one of the members here who was at the first service loaned me one of his cars from his fleet, and we drove that. And I remember just thinking, I had to borrow a car. Now, you may say, what's the big deal? Well, you don't. Look, your pastor has issues, a whole bunch of them. And this one, I mean, I was like, you can't, why don't you get your cars fixed? You're borrowing this. Think of Jesus the, who owned everything. And yet, when he came into this world, he borrowed a place to be born. He borrowed a place to lay his head to sleep. He borrowed a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. From that borrowed boat, he preached to the crowd from that boat. He borrowed an animal to ride into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Last week, we saw where he had to borrow a room for the final Passover meal with his disciples. Even the tomb in which he was buried was borrowed. The only person ever to live on this earth who had the right to everything by his own choice becomes a servant and has nothing. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that boggles my mind. It boggles the imagination. He also emptied himself not only of his heavenly riches, but also of his heavenly glory. And he became a servant. Verse 7, look with me if you will at verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He emptied himself. He poured out himself. That's a theme in Mark's, Mark's gospel. A few years ago, we studied Mark's gospel, and, and I kept thinking, when I'd go to prepare a sermon, I would think, you know, I just preached this sermon. And I'd realize that it was like every other chapter, he's teaching the same thing. He's saying, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And he takes that one lesson, and he goes over and over and over and over again. He's teaching them humility. We have the example of Jesus with the washing of the disciples' feet, where he served them. And even our best examples of where we try to compare someone lowering themselves and being a servant, they fall far short, though some are very admirable. I was told of a man who bought a trucking company that was in dire financial straits. And to try to get the company into the black, the drivers and all the employees had to take pay cuts. And 
they did so knowing what was at stake. And so each morning when they came to work, he was there to greet them. And this boss, this owner of the company, bought donuts and coffee for all the drivers. He'd be there to greet them at the office. He learned the names, not only of all the employees, but also of their family members. He learned their children's names. At Christmas time, he had purchased gifts for all of the employees' children that were age-appropriate and identified by that person's child's name. And the drivers said of this man, he cares about us, he sits with us, he talks with us. And that's admirable. And my hat's off to someone who does that. But we have to multiply that by a thousand to begin to understand what Jesus did when he lowered himself. At the, at the incarnation, he did not give up his divinity, but he took upon himself a human nature. So you have the God-man, the divine and the human in one being. And his humility, last of all, not only was it chosen, not only was it sacrificial, but it was to the death. He humbled himself and served to the death. Think about the trial of Jesus. Here he's falsely accused in a mock trial, illegal trial taking place in the middle of the night. False witnesses are paid to come and say things about him that weren't true. He did not say a word to defend himself through that humiliation. They mocked him, they punched him, they pulled his beard, they treated him as the scum of the earth, yet he did not say a single word in his defense. He was silent. He did not, not demand his rights, even to death. The lowest, cruelest form of, of punishment in existence at the time, it was a bloody, brutal, sadistic, humiliating, agonizing, demeaning death by crucifixion on a cross. At no time during that did Jesus say, stop, that is enough. Not in the middle of the trial, not in the middle of his mockery. In fact, verse 8 uses this word, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even, even death on a cross. The worst, the worst form of death. So go back with me to verses 3 and 4, where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do you see other people as more important than yourself? I mean, really. Not just like you manipulate people by making them think that. But do you really see others as more important than yourself? Other family members? Church members? Subordinates? Superiors? Friends? Do people feel valued when they are with you? Ever had to lower yourself in some way? Your standard of living? I didn't grow up in a wealthy family. My father grew up in the Depression, and I don't know how many times I heard him say he just had two shirts while he was in high school, and one day he'd wear one, the other day he'd wear another. Like many of y'all's grandparents or others that may have been uh, right after the Depression, their family had to split up. He had to go move with an, with an uncle and aunt down in Jacksonville, Florida, just because his dad couldn't couldn't provide food for them. And so I'd hear about that. So later when he became a lawyer and a judge, he still had a very, very, very conservative view toward money, never had a credit card, never bought anything on credit uh, that I'm aware of, or very little, where making payments just was afraid of interest and or paying interest. 
So from the time I was in high school, I always had a car. From the time I was 16, I had a car. It may have been old cars, but I, you know, I was privileged. Go to college, go to seminary. Barbara and I are serving with Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Arkansas. And expecting a third baby, far more expenses than income. So I have to sell the car. I can't afford the insurance and the gasoline. So uh, I'm riding a bicycle to work. Now, this is a, a wealthy, spoiled American standing. I told you I had issues. <laughs> I already told you. I mean, I warned you of that. And that bicycle, I'd get on that bicycle to go to work, and I think, oh, man, you know, you've had a car since you were 16. When you were in college, you had a job that paid you more than this one. I made more cleaning commodes back in the factory than I'm making right here as a minister. And I, it just did a number. And what it was, God was humbling me. It was a start. And, and, and so it was, it, was, it was downsizing in a different way. This morning at the early service, there were over 100 students and leaders of campus outreach. They're training for their summer projects, you know, that will serve on beach projects. And I told them, I said, I was on a beach project. I was on a beach project with Campus Crusade for Christ back in the dark ages, you know. Right after the glaciers melted off of North America before they planted the redwoods. And I said, I had a job. I was, you know, we had different jobs. And I asked them this morning, I said, do y'all get jobs? They said, yeah. I said, or do you raise support? They said, well, we kind of do both. I said, well, we, had to, we got jobs. One guy I lived with, he worked in a donut shop. And I reminded them of where donuts were first made in history, you know, in Greece. And I told them I was, a, uh, I was on a maintenance crew at an amusement park. There were 57 students on our project. And I, was, and I said, uh, one, during, around 4th of July, those of us on the maintenance crew, all the garbage backed up at this big resort. And so they had us, me and my buddy who went to the University of Texas, we work on the garbage truck. So it was my, it was my baptism by fire to um, disposable diapers. <laughs> I didn't know those things existed till then. I mean, there were piles of these things. And we would take garbage, and we didn't have these hydraulic lifts. We weren't official sanitation engineers. We were garbage men, so we would take the... And what, about half that went in came right back on. <laughs> and I remember being by this one place, and this guy saying, Hey, hey you, kind of like you missed something. Come over here and pick this up. And inside of me, I want to say... I'm in college. My father's a professional. I've got more education, and it just, I think God maybe put me on that project that summer just to taste. Just a taste. That's a drop in the ocean of how Christ, Christ, all the riches of heaven, all the authority of heaven, who would choose, who would choose to humble himself like that? But that's what he did. So let me summarize this. Palm Sunday. On this day, we specially give attention to his coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the crowds yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, though they totally misunderstood he was coming as a spiritual king, not as a political king. But he entered Jerusalem on a donkey by his own choice. He chose to be arrested and falsely accused. It was his choice. He was beaten and lied about, spit upon, by his choice. He was crucified by his choice. Now think about this as far as what Paul's saying in this chapter, how it relates to how we treat one another. Here's Jesus, 
the sovereign Lord of the universe. He spoke the creation into existence out of nothing. Then he chooses to become not just a lesser form of God, not even a low-ranking angel, but he chooses to become a man. And not any man, not a wealthy king with lots of influence and comfort, he chooses to become a servant. And not just any kind of servant in high places, he chooses to become a bondservant. And then he chooses to be a servant all the way to the point of death. And not a death surrounded by family and friends who love you and care for you and tell you how much you've meant to them, but the death, the most humiliating, degrading, painful death on a cross. So he who was here chose to put himself there And what Paul says too often, we who are here want to put ourselves there. And so the next time you are tempted to demand your way only or not think of the interest of others, the next time you want the glory you feel that you rightfully deserve but is not coming to you, the next time you feel embarrassed or bitter because of some reversal or downsizing in your life, you would do well to consider the humility of Christ. And thankfully, the story does not end there. And that's what I want to look at next week is the latter part of this where God exalted him through the resurrection. Do you know Christ this morning? You don't know him by just trying to be good. Maybe you are by a nice moral person that people respect. But you and I and all of us have a problem. The Bible says it's sin. And God must punish our sin that when we've broken his law to any degree in our thought, words, or actions, that the punishment will be death, physical death in this life, eternal death, which is hell apart from him. We need a substitute, someone who can come. Christ did. Christ chose to become incarnate, to humble himself. He lived a perfect life. He always followed God's laws. And he died as a substitute. He died... As a substitute. So here's me and my sin. And when Christ was on the cross, God put my sin on him and then poured out his wrath and punished him in my place. Three days later, he rose from the grave. The last command he gave his disciples was to go into all the world and to make disciples. You and I are here today because those disciples did that. And we are far from the land of Israel where that message first went out. And yet, so now God calls us to put our trust and faith in Christ Jesus, not in ourselves, not in anyone else, not in a church, not in a preacher, not in a priest, but the great high priest, and that, that, is, that is Jesus. Have you done so? If you haven't, you can do so today. Just express it to God in the quietness of your heart that, Lord, I trust in you. I trust that, that yes, I am a sinner, and I believe that Jesus died in my place, and when he did, he paid for my sins. And I can do nothing to add to that or take away from it, but I believe it. Let's pray together. Our Father... We're awed at the humility of Christ, of him choosing to humble himself. We pray that even as we give special attention this time of year to the death and resurrection of Christ at Easter time, that we might remember it was not an accident. It was not a plot by the Romans, but it was a, it was a choice that he made carrying out of your sovereign plan to provide a redeemer for us. And we thank you and praise you for that, through him that we can have life and life eternal. In his name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is a good expression of, uh, of trusting in the righteousness of Christ. So let me ask you to sing.